Well, we are in the fifth week of our sermon series through 1 Corinthians, and we have been focusing on this call to unity in faith in Jesus, and that, that we're not to be a people who are divided, but that we're united in faith in Christ. And as we've seen so far in this letter that the Apostle Paul has written to this church community in the city of Corinth, uh, we see in what Paul's written, we know that the people there in Corinth have been really concerned about their status, their social status, how they're viewed by other people, and finding their value in that status. And so uh, they have this ambition and this desire to accumulate intellectual and philosophical wisdom and knowledge. And we know that this concern in their own lives, it reflected the culture around them, that, that the city and the time that they lived in, these were valued and these were important social, cultural issues and where they found their value. And because... The church community in Corinth was pursuing these things. It led to all these problems and divisions within the church there, the church family. And this division's being expressed in all these different ways, in sexual immorality, in conflicts and lawsuits and factions or teams within the church, that there's a lot of theological arguments going on, that there's some elitism, that some people in the church, because of their social status, are looking down on others within the church community. And there's a whole bunch of other controversial issues that we're going to see all throughout this book in the coming months. And I just want to do a quick recap of the first chapter that we've been going through for the last few weeks. We've seen what, what the Apostle Paul does as he's going to begin addressing these divisions within their community. What he does is point them back. Look back at what you've already learned about Jesus. So, so Paul isn't coming in with a new lesson, with some new material. He's pointing them back to what they've already learned, and he's recalibrating them. Remember what you've seen, what you've heard. Remember why you're in this church community in the first place. And he's, he's pointing out, you've been looking at things the wrong way. You've been listening to voices that are leading you astray. So, so Paul said, remember your identity in Christ Jesus. You're called by him. He's reminded them that, that ultimately you don't follow me, Paul, or Peter, or Apollos, or any other Christian leader. Ultimately, you follow Jesus. He's the one that you follow. And the power and the wisdom and the intellectual pursuits and, and philosophy, these things that you've been seeking, they're valued by the world, but that, that power and wisdom is inferior to the power and the wisdom of God. And, and as we saw last week, the wisdom and the power of God is most perfectly, clearly displayed through the death of Jesus, the Son of God, on the cross. In the passage we'll look at today, we'll see what true wisdom or what true maturity looks like, how to grow in our faith in Jesus, walking in the way of Jesus. So in this passage in chapter 2, we'll see a plan for growth, a power for growth, and a path to growth. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll read verses 6 through the end of the chapter. It's on page 953 if you're using one of the Bibles. 
from the table in the back. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. For we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray once more. Father, again we, we admit and acknowledge our need for you as we've been learning. We have an inability to know you, to see you, to understand who you are without your revelation without showing us who you are. And so as we pray, as we come to your word now, it is really in desperation for if you don't show us who you are, we can't find you. We can't think our way to you. We can't explore our way to you. We need you to show us who you are. So Holy Spirit, would you reveal the hidden things to us, the things that are too mysterious, too great for us. Show us, Jesus. We need you today. Would you come and meet us here? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we know in what we've seen so far in this book, we've seen that there's been a good amount of time stressing, <laughs> stressing that the wisdom of the world, uh, and, and we got to maybe redefine or remember what the wisdom of the world is. That's, that's the way that, that we would view the world, uh, everything, interpret everything outside of Jesus. Uh, the, the theme so far for Paul has been to say again and again, this wisdom, this way of the world, this way of thinking outside of Jesus is worthless. It's worthless and it's passing away. This, this wisdom, Paul wants to show us that there's a worthlessness to it, that it's passing away. He said that it's, it's being invalidated, that, that what was seen as important and crucial is actually has no value to it. And, and now Paul starts to pivot, and 
he starts to talk about what true wisdom looks like in the community of Jesus. He's, he's basically saying the whole idea of wisdom, that's not the problem. We're not, we're not anti-intellectual. We're not trying to say we just need to devalue the idea of wisdom or anything like that. We know that all through the scriptures, I mean, there's a whole book in the Old Testament that is about wisdom, the book of Proverbs, and showing us that, that wisdom is actually from God. So we don't want to devalue wisdom, but we need to, we need to pursue true wisdom. Because whenever, whenever we try to define wisdom outside of what God has revealed to us, that's, that's when we're going to have problems. When we try to make our own rules to establish our own authority outside of what God has shown us, that's the problem. That's worthless wisdom. So now Paul's established this. He's, he's given us multiple examples. He turns to look at what true wisdom looks like for those who follow Jesus. He says in verse 6, among the mature, we do impart or we speak or we teach wisdom. So there is a wisdom that Paul, and, and I think he's referring to the other apostles, the early church leaders, he says there is a wisdom that we do teach. But, but Paul gives a condition here. Who does he teach it to? Who do they teach this wisdom to? He says it's the mature now, who are the mature? We all like to think of ourselves as mature. That's one of the ways that we define ourselves. I'm very mature. I've learned things. I've experienced things. I'm, you know, when you're younger, you like to be known as being mature for your age. Isn't that one of like the highlights of your life when you're a young teenager, adolescent or something? You're like, I like to be known as someone who's mature for my age. Uh, from, from what we could tell within the city of Corinth and within the church community, it is, it's very likely that there was an idea of a mature or a what we could call a spiritually adult type of person or type of Christian. And this idea has probably evolved. So, so if, in the same way that in the culture of Corinth and the Greco-Roman culture, that there were different tiers, socially, intellectually, and you were defined, your identity was, was established in these tiers. Are you rich? Are you educated? Who's your family? Those kind of things. Uh, in the same way that there were tiers in, in culture, there were different levels that had formed within the church. And, and again, probably on the basis of the same things, education, social status, uh, or the expression of really exciting spiritual gifts that we'll get to later in the book. Uh, there were probably some people within the Corinthian church that, that claimed the rank of maturity because of these, these uh, markers that they were using and saying that they possessed a special kind of wisdom and trying to use that status or those gifts to place themselves above other believers in the church, trying to elevate their status within the community. And again, that's reflecting what's going on outside the community of Jesus as well. But, but is this what Paul means when he's talking about maturity, different levels or tiers within the Christian community? And I think based on what he said so far in the letter, what we've learned so far, 
I don't think he could mean that kind of maturity. He's not talking about, you know, you, you pass level one, then you get into level two and level three, because so far he keeps telling us that it's the foolish, the weak, the insignificant things that really display the wisdom of God. So it can't be these other markers of status. Uh, those, those other kinds of wisdom or those other kinds of identity or status, those aren't the wisdom of God. Those are the wisdom of the world. They're not in the way of Jesus. He's showing us wisdom is shaped by the cross of Jesus. And if that's what wisdom is, then our whole idea of what maturity is and what growth is needs to be shaped by the cross as well. So, so I think what Paul is doing here when he says, I do teach the wisdom of God to the mature, he's trying to reshape the Corinthians' idea of what maturity is, what a, what a spiritually mature follower of Jesus would look like. And really, it's someone who reflects Jesus. That's a mature Christian, someone who reflects Jesus. So, so if you want to grow in Christ, if you want to grow in your maturity in Christ, you have to shape your life in the way of Christ. Maturity and growth don't come by social status. They don't even come through the gifts that God gives us, spiritual gifts or otherwise, but through living out our new identity in Jesus. So then what does it look like on the ground to be mature in Christ. Uh, Anthony Thistleton, he says that, that maturity in Christ is the flowering or the blooming of those qualities which characterize the God who reveals himself in the humiliation of the cross and the love of Christ for others. Maturity in Christ, in Jesus, means to reflect the character of Jesus. What was Jesus like he was humble, he's gracious, he's loving, he's committed, he's concerned for the good of others, and he's dedicated to honoring God, right? All through Jesus' life, he's saying, whatever I'm doing, I do it to glorify and honor the Father. So maturity is not an elevating of yourself, hoping people will see you as a mature person. It's an elevation of Jesus, and it's an elevation of others. Christian maturity is a life that's shaped by the cross and reflects the value of the cross in all these different ways. So, so there is a wisdom that we pursue and that we live by in the way of Jesus, but that wisdom is only for those who are mature, for those whose lives are shaped by the cross of Jesus. So then, okay, what is this wisdom? What is this message that you're teaching, Paul? Because that's what we want to know. That's what we want to hear about. Again, we know what it's not. Paul says in verse, uh, what is it, verse Six here, he says, this wisdom is not a wisdom of this age, this time period, this culture, or the rulers of, these, of this age who are doomed to pass away. Just in case you forgot, the wisdom of the world is worthless and passing away. So we know it's not that. Uh, and, and there's lots of information. There's lots of knowledge available. And, and think of this now on the internet uh, podcast books on your phone you can look up anything right how much of that stuff do you remember like we we can't even remember we were doing this the other day 
we're trying to remember what movie we watched the, a few days before, and it took us like 10 minutes, and we're like, we can't look on Disney Plus to see what we recently watched. We have to try to remember it, and, and it just, we couldn't do it. I, I gave up. I was like, I'm moving on to the next thing, uh, and I just walked away, but the family continued, and they figured it out eventually. Uh, but, but think about that as just a picture of of the wisdom and the knowledge of the world that's passing away. You've read and spent countless hours on social media probably, and none of that is worth anything really. Not to devalue your friends or whatever, but it's just to say that's not, that's not a lasting value. It's not a lasting worth, and this is certainly not the wisdom that Paul is talking about, okay, then what is this wisdom? Paul says in verse 7, we impart, I teach, uh, I speak about a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory or for our glorification. He says, this wisdom that I teach is a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Now, Secret and hidden sounds very mystical and very spiritual, like there should be like a bell going off somewhere and some incense involved. Secret, hidden, there needs to be a guru, a spiritual guide who can lead us to this place through the hiddenness, through the secrets and bring us to the place of wisdom. Maybe something you have to spend years and years of contemplation or meditation discerning the secret or the hiddenness of the wisdom of God. But we hear the words hidden, secret, or mystery, and we get those kinds of ideas. But actually in the New Testament, the concept of a secret or a mystery um, is, is not really talking about our inability to understand it, like it's something cloudy and not very distinct. But the hiddenness or the secret uh, is really about something that you didn't see before but has now been unveiled or has been revealed. So so God, Paul's saying, God's been working on a, an eternal plan, an eternal purpose, and in Jesus, that plan, that mystery is coming to light. It's being revealed. It's being made known. And And he goes on to say in verse 8, None of the rulers of this age, they, they didn't understand this, but if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory, the one who is working his plan and purpose. If they knew this mystery, if it had been revealed to them, they would not have crucified Jesus. But there are some who are beginning to understand the mystery of God, the one's he is showing it to, the ones he's revealing it to. And here Paul quotes an ancient saying, as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, right? This isn't something that people came up with. No one's seen anything like it. No one's heard a story like this. No one has imagined something like God's eternal plan and purpose, which he has prepared for those who love him. One way that we can think about the wisdom of God is not as information to be gained, but as a story to be told. 
And I, I love this example in, in C.S. Lewis's writing in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, and many of you know this story, but just to give a quick recap, if you don't, uh, we have the four Pevensey siblings, right? These two brothers and two sisters, they magically enter the kingdom of Narnia through the wardrobe, and they find themselves as the fulfillment of this age-old prophecy that they're to take these uh, the, the thrones, these four empty thrones that have been waiting for the fulfillment of this prophecy, but there's somebody else who's been ruling Narnia in the meantime, the white witch, and she, of course, doesn't want them to take these thrones because then her authority is diminished, and so she tricks one of the brothers, Edmund, into betraying his siblings for her. So, so he turns them over to her, but in doing so, he becomes subject to what is called the deep magic. I bet you didn't think you were going to hear about magic today. <laughs> uh, so the deep magic was a set of laws that was uh, placed into Narnia by the emperor beyond the sea. We're getting real deep here. Uh, at the time of the creation of Narnia. And this law, the deep magic, stated that the white witch, uh, she was entitled. She had the authority to kill a traitor. Anyone who was a traitor. Uh, and, and if someone denied her that right to, to exercise her right to kill a traitor, then, then all of Narnia, the order of Narnia, would, would perish in fire and water. So, so she tricks Edmund into betraying his siblings, and in so doing, he, becomes, uh, he comes under the deep magic, this law, where he's going to lose his life at the hand of the white witch. And so when it comes time for Edmund to pay the penalty for his betrayal. Aslan, who is this lion, who's the one true king of Narnia, he offers to take the place of Edmund. And the witch, she's, she's delighted. This is working out even better than, than she had hoped. And though he is innocent, Aslan is killed on the stone table by the white witch. And Edmund's two sisters, Lucy and Susan, they watch the whole execution of Aslan from a distance and in the morning, they go to the table uh, just to mourn the loss of Aslan, this king that they had just met and had just come to know. But they, when they get to the table, they're shocked to find that Aslan is gone. And they find, they turn around and they see that Aslan has been resurrected. He's come back to life. Now, what has happened here? Aslan goes on to explain. Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there is a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. We could say that the wisdom and the values of the world operate in the same way as the deep magic of Narnia. 
But Jesus is operating under the principle of a deeper magic, that the old age is passing away and no longer operates as the authority. A new age has broken in, and the cross, something that was despised, something that was humiliated, something seen as foolish and disgusting, It is now shown to be the power and the wisdom of God, what actually ushers in the deeper magic. And this is how it has always been. Not an afterthought, not an adjustment, not a plan B. Jesus' death on the cross for our salvation, for our glorification, that's been God's plan all along from before time began, purpose before the foundation of the world, to be mature, to be wise, is to see this plan, to understand it, and to shape our lives in the new light of this, this deeper magic, this plan and purpose. Uh, theologian Brian Rosner, he says, maturity is the wisdom of the cross, applied to our everyday life. I love, I love that definition. And this is God's plan for our growth. But I think there's, there's sort of a problem here that you might have noticed, that, that if the wisdom of God cannot be learned through intellectual or philosophical knowledge, how can we understand, really understand God's plan and purpose? How can what is hidden become known. And this is what verse 10 tells us. These things, these hidden and secret things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Here is God's power for growth. <clears throat> now, now this is important. When I say that the Holy Spirit is God's power for our growth in Jesus in maturity, I don't mean that the Holy Spirit is some kind of essence uh, or impersonal force, okay? The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is a person. And any experience that we have, any encounter with the Holy Spirit is always personal. It's It's not about learning to manipulate or master the power of God, but it is having a personal encounter with the Spirit of God. And it's this personal nature uh, of God. That's, that's exactly what Paul is talking about in the second half of verse 10. He says, For the Spirit of God searches or knows the thoughts of everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So, so the very things that we cannot understand, the things of God, his eternal plan, his purpose, we could say the deeper magic, these things that we cannot understand, the Spirit of God can and does know these things, understands these things. So, so think about yourself in the same way that that my thoughts, my motivations, the things that drive me, uh, they can only be truly understood 
by me. And even that's complicated, right? Like, like we, would, we would say, I think I know what's going on, but probably not. And, and that we spend a good deal of time trying to figure out what is going on in here? What's happening in me? Uh, but, but, and imagine other people. They certainly can't figure out what's going on with you. So, uh, so if, in the same way, we would say, my own thoughts, the things that drive me, they can only be understood by me. Paul says, the Spirit of God knows and understands and comprehends the thoughts of God, the purposes of God, the plans of God. And here is where the Holy Spirit of God gives us a power or an avenue for growing in Jesus, now we have received, not the spirit of the world, the spirit that's passing away, but we have received the spirit who is from God, that we might understand, comprehend the things freely given to us by God. So the Holy Spirit reveals, uncovers what has been hidden, the full, glorious plan and purposes of God. And even in this, we, we think, well, I mean, I know a little bit. <laughs> I, I'm starting to understand, I think, a little bit, but it's still, it's still difficult. And, and one of the challenges of even this promise, this gift, is it's not a full unveiling, right? There's, there's so much more that we're going to learn and understand about walking in Jesus and, and the plans and purposes of God. But what we have has been freely given to us by God through the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we achieve. It's something that we receive. And we need to see that for the incredible gift that it is. You are hearing today the eternal plan and purpose of God revealed in Jesus expressed through his death on the cross. That's God's plan. That's his purpose. And the Holy Spirit is uncovering that, revealing that to you today, unveiling that for you. And that's a miracle. You couldn't do that yourself. You wouldn't have come to this on your own if the Spirit had not drawn you here. And that's that's the gift that Paul is pointing the Corinthians toward. He knows they're worried And he knows that we are worried about what we can achieve. How are we going to get there? How are we going to build our identity and our worth? But Paul says, look at what you've already been given. Look at what you've already received. The Spirit of God has shown you the way of Jesus. The Spirit of God has opened your eyes to see the eternal plan and purpose of God. You don't need anything else. You don't need to go looking for a better message, a better gospel. You've already been shown the eternal plan and purpose of God. And he says, this is what I've always taught you. This is what you've already learned. He says in verse 13, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but by the Spirit, taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And that's a, that's a really tricky translation. I had to read it about 10 times, and finally I went with a different translation, the NIV, which I think actually is a little bit easier to understand, that we would say uh, the, we, 
he's saying we have taught this in words not taught by human wisdom. He says we are explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words, is how the NIV translates that. So, so Paul's saying for both the teacher, uh, Paul, the other early church leaders, and for the students, the Corinthian church, and any of the other churches there who are following Jesus, all of them, the teachers, the students, they're all operating from what they have received, what the Holy Spirit has given to them. During our dinner the other night, our gospel community, we were, we were talking about how impossible it feels sometimes for people to believe the good news of Jesus, right? We were talking about the cross as a stumbling block, and, and it seems so foolish and ridiculous in light of, of kind of the way people think about the world, just as it was for the Corinthian church. And, and we think about people that we work with, people that we care about, our family, our friends, our neighbors. And, and I, I, I know I feel this. This is what we were talking about is, you know, how do we convey to people the beauty and the importance and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us? How do we just get that across, you know? And we all feel so inadequate and unable to do this, and, and it feels awkward, and, and we're looking for the right opening and the right opportunity, and we're just hoping that people will just come to us and ask for a really straight-up answer, and then they'll just go, yes, I'm in. But, but that rarely happens. It does happen sometimes, which is always exciting, but but we feel inadequate and unable to share the good news of Jesus. So we try to learn things. We try to read. We try to study. We try to anticipate questions. But at the end of the day, can we really convince people? And the answer here is clearly no. We cannot convince people into the way of Jesus. And I think the way that we can best see that, is look back on your own life. How did you come into the kingdom of Jesus? How did you come to know your need for salvation in Jesus? How did you come to a point where you believed and trusted that what Jesus did on the cross was for you? The answer is the same for us as it was for the Corinthians. We believe, you believe, I believe, because the Holy Spirit has revealed Jesus to us. That is why we believe. The Spirit has uncovered God's eternal plan to us. Here is what was hidden. Here is what was secret. Now you can see. Now you can understand. We've been invited into this. None of us had a map and navigated our way into the kingdom of God. We weren't smarter or faster or more curious or more spiritual or more diligent than anyone else. But in God's sovereign wisdom, he chose to reveal Jesus to us and to call us into his family through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, revealing how much we need Jesus every day. That is the power of our growth and our maturity 
in Jesus. That's, that's what real maturity in Jesus is. It's not a point of arrival at which you say, I am now on maturity mountain. Like I climbed the top of it and here I stand a mature and wise Christian. Christianity, uh, the maturity within Christianity is, is not a point of arrival. It's a continual process that we're recognizing our need for Jesus every day. The Holy Spirit's continually at work in us, continually uncovering our sin, continually leading us to repent, pointing us to Jesus, showing us the way of the cross. And it's here that we see a path to our growth. And this is Paul's conclusion to this section. He gives us one final contrast that the natural person or the person who lives according to the wisdom of the world does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person or the spirit who walks in the way of Jesus has accepted the wisdom of God, judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Essentially, Paul is saying here, There are two paths that we can take in order to grow, in order to mature. The first is the way of the world, the way of what he calls the natural person. So in this way, we reject the message of Jesus. We can say, I don't need to be saved from anything because I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything worse Then the next person, I'm just as good as anyone else. I'll just keep going. I will be kind. I will do good. I will make my own way. I will walk my own path. I'll write my own story. The second path to grow is the way of the Spirit. And in this way, the Holy Spirit reveals our need for salvation and the provision for that need in who Jesus is, what he has done for us on the cross. So in order to walk and to grow on this path, we have to learn how to stop caring about the judgments and the opinions of those who are on the other path. He's saying in verse 15, the spiritual person judges or understands all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. He's not saying that, that no one can, can judge a Christian for anything. So don't, don't use this as a verse to uh, get away from somebody talking to you about a hard thing in your life. If somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I just noticed maybe there's some things in your life and I just want to lovingly ask you, are you walking in the way of Jesus? You can't say, I'm to be judged by no one. That's not what Paul is saying here, so don't, don't go there. Unfortunately, a lot of people have used this verse for that. What Paul is trying to say is, when we live and grow in the way of Jesus, we learn to stop caring about the judgments of those who are not on the same path as we are. And it doesn't mean we stop caring about them. It doesn't mean we live in pride and arrogance over them. It simply means that we live by a different value system. We, we believe different ways. We, we believe in a different kind of wisdom. That's what Paul's been saying all along. Now, what is the difference, the real difference between these two paths? It, it hinges on either our acceptance or our rejection of the way of the cross, the way of Jesus. 
How do we come to walk in the way of Jesus? How do we come to accept him? It's through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the gift of God to reveal to us the beauty and the glory of Jesus. Now, now I want to assume that there are people here today who are on one or, you know, there, there's probably people here who are on both of those paths, not at the same time. I'm just saying we have some people on one, some people on the other. But here's what's true for all of us, whatever path you're on, uh, it's hard to walk and live in the way of Jesus, no matter what. For those who reject Jesus, we'd say, right, it's impossible. Uh, you can't walk in the way of Jesus if you reject him. You might admire him as a teacher or as an example or somebody you've learned a few things from, but you're not going to submit your whole life to Jesus. You're not going to say, I'm going to change everything. I'm going I'm to look at the cross as the wisdom of God. You still have objections. There's too many holes in Christianity for you. And, and to that, I want to give a quote uh, from G.K. Chesterton. He says, the Christian ideal, or the way of the cross, has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. So today, I want to say, if you're in that place of rejecting Jesus and, and you, have, you have not truly tried to follow him, I want to say that today you're being given an invitation by the Holy Spirit to try the way of Jesus, to walk on that new path. And I've been praying, and I'm even praying now that that you respond to that. Yes, I want to follow Jesus. I want to walk in his way. And for those of us who have accepted Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit, that's still hard. Following Jesus is still difficult. It's still challenging. And Jesus told us that again and again. This is not going to be easy to walk in this way. But we don't do this. We don't walk in the way of Jesus in our own strength. We don't walk in the way of Jesus in our own willpower. We walk in the way of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if God has loved us, if he's revealed himself to us, if he's shown us his eternal plan and purpose, if he's called us into his family, he is not going to abandon us. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to give up on us when we fail, when we find it difficult, when we complain, when we stumble. And so I think the call for us is to keep walking in Jesus. Keep seeking him. Keep looking to the cross. Keep asking the Holy Spirit to, to grow you and to mature you, to keep showing you your need for Jesus, and to keep asking the Holy Spirit, keep showing me how Jesus meets the needs that I have. Bring him all your hopes, all your longings, and all your needs, and walk with him. Grow with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we could be here today to hear your invitation. And we recognize that it's not through the power of the words that I've spoken or of the power of our own understanding that anything has changed today. 
It's only the work of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that, that you have ministered to us, that you have called us to Jesus. That for those of us who have been rejecting Jesus, that we would surrender our lives and see what you've done and walk in the way of Jesus. And for those of us who have been struggling and doubting and fearing, that we would be reminded of your love for us, of your purposes for us, that we didn't work our way into this, and that means we can't work ourselves out, but you would refresh and give us a renewed sense of our calling in you, Jesus, of, of what real maturity looks like, that it's not some point of arrival, but it's the process of learning to live in the way of the cross. I pray for all of us here that we would see Jesus and magnify him together and worship you, Jesus. You are the Son of God. You are the one who gave yourself on the cross for us. And we worship you. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen.